Would you please join me in Mark chapter 6? For those who haven't been here for a while or haven't been here before, we are working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And we started, I think, in June, so it's taken us a little while, and we've made it to chapter 6 today. Chapter 6 is actually the second longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. The chapters and verses weren't there in the original, but we have it divided into chapters. I'm thankful for that. And this is one of the longest, and it has a lot of information in it. So I'm going to give you an outline of the chapter. You don't have to write this down. There's not going to be anything on the test later about this. But I talked about pop quizzes a couple weeks ago, right? (laughs) So chapter outline starts off in the passage we're going to look at today. Rejection at Nazareth. Then Jesus sends out the 12. He sends them out two by two. We then have a section on the death of John the Baptist and a little bit about Herod. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. And then the 12 come back. And there's a, just a verse or so, just a few verses about how their mission went. Then we get into a familiar story, I think, the feeding of the 5,000. Then Jesus walks on the water. Those are probably more familiar to us. And then healing at Gennesaret. So that's where we are. We're just going to do that first little section of the outline today, the rejection at Nazareth. But there's a lot going on here. And as some people have pointed out, we see a repeated theme in this chapter. And the repeated theme seems to be unbelief. Rejection, unbelief. First off, we see that the hometown where Jesus grew up, the people there reject him. We certainly see the hint of rejection of the, dis- the disciples, the apostles, as they are sent out. Um, Herod was an adversary of the Lord in many ways, and he is in this chapter. And then even the disciples, we, we get another glimpse into their lack of understanding and their lack of belief by the time we get to the end here about the, the loaves and fish and even walking on the water, that section. So understand that we have struggles with belief. Okay, let's not approach this or any of the other passages in this chapter with the idea that, oh, I'm so glad I don't have any struggles with doubts or beliefs or questions anymore. I'm just completely sold out to God and I've gotten over my issues with unbelief. We, we typically struggle from time to time. I know I do. And so let's come at this realizing that at any point in our lives, we may be struggling with unbelief and we need to know how to combat that. We've been talking about trust and faith a lot in this Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to read our passage right now, just six verses today. Would you stand, please? I'm going to read Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Then Jesus went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we know that this is your word, that you have spoken it. And we know that it is alive and powerful even today. And so I ask, Lord, that you would cause your word to come alive to us today, that we would see you, see you in this passage, and then see ourselves in this passage and know what you want us to do about it. Lord, I pray that we would not be tired of what is familiar to us, even in terms of the gospel. That you would give us fresh ears and fresh eyes this morning. That you would remind us again of your amazing, marvelous, matchless grace. Father, I ask that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit to teach your word this morning, that I would be accurate with it, and that you would show us what you want us to see in the mirror of your word. Lord, I pray that this would not be an academic exercise this morning, that we learn new facts, but that we understand that these are the words of life, and that these are words that change us, that pierce down into the innermost part of us. We pray that you would do that, that you would accomplish your will as you've promised to do, that it would not return void to you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This isn't really the message that I thought I was preparing this week. I like to know what I'm going to preach, and I like to study it, and I thought we were going to go to verse 13 until about 7 o'clock this morning. And I knew it was a possibility because I showed you the outline. There are seven different things going on in this one chapter. And we've talked about that sandwich, those bookends, that approach that Mark keeps using to tell stories. We have that starting in the end of verse 6, verse 7. So I thought, should I go with that? What, what is the connection between these? Lord, what do you want me to say? And as I prayed this morning, some of you know this, some of you don't, but Nearly every Sunday, I spend some time praying for each individual, each family in the church. And as I was doing that this morning and praying for you all, I became convinced that the Lord wanted me to do just the first six verses and talk about this idea of unbelief. So I don't have any one person in mind. It's not that. But this is for somebody. Somebody here, somebody listening, watching online, I don't know. But this, I believe, is what God has for us this morning. I don't want any of us who grew up like I did. I grew up going to church. I grew up, my parents, my siblings were Christians, which is a wonderful thing. That's not bad. But there are times when we hear it all the way back to our earliest remembrances. I went to church. I read the Bible or somebody read it to me. I don't want us to take for granted the gospel. I don't want us just to assume I'm a Christian because I go to church or because my family is all believers or anything else. We need to understand it from the oldest to the youngest person in this room. We need to know what the gospel is and know that each one of us has to respond to it individually. The free gift of salvation is offered. What are we going to do about it? During Jesus' earthly ministry, his own family rejected him. And we've already seen in a previous chapter, chapter 3, that they even came to take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. 
And he needed some rest, and he needed to get away from people for a little while because he had these strange ideas that he needed to heal and cast out demons and preach and basically offend the religious leaders. And this isn't normal, so we're just going to take you home. He's already been rejected in that way by his family. But we see some hints of that again today. And we're going to see further rejection by the people of his own hometown. So there are three main ideas I'd like you to get from these verses with me this morning. The first is that familiarity with Jesus is different from faith in Jesus. Particularly here in the southeast, if you talk to somebody, you're going to get a a religious answer. If you try to bring up religious things, you're going to find out, oh, I go to church, and which church they go to. And, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. And even people who don't have a church background may may say, well, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good man. He was, he was the best of everything. And that's true. He, he was all those things, but he wasn't just those things. And when you ask somebody to you, who is Jesus? The response is very important. You're going to get either he was a good man, he was a good teacher, he is God, that's a good answer. The Son of God, that's a really good answer. But when I ask that question, one thing I'm listening for is any reference to, he's my Savior. He's my Lord. And if we stop short of those statements, we may not have a full understanding of the gospel. Number two, being in a family with other believers does not make you a believer. Jesus' own brothers, half-brothers and half-sisters, did not believe in him. None of them did until after he rose from the dead. And then we know of at least two brothers who did. Number three, Jesus is hindered by unbelief. And I'll qualify that statement when we get there in case some of you were wondering. You mean somebody stopped Jesus? Not exactly. But I chose that word carefully. Jesus is hindered by unbelief. Go back with me to verse 1, and we'll work through this a verse at a time. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. What does it mean when it says his own country? Some of your translations say his hometown, and that's Nazareth. That's what we were talking about in our scripture reading earlier. Nazareth. Nazareth was a little-known village. It was 70 miles north of Jerusalem and about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. And It's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. Somebody described it as a nowhere town made up of nobodies. Population. I've never seen this until I saw it in a reference book this week. My dad grew up in northern Maine in a town of a thousand, and I've always thought of that as a pretty small town. I know there are smaller ones in the world, but that was my idea of a small town. At least one scholar thinks that the population of Nazareth at this point was plus or minus 150 maybe 200, a small group. We have, I haven't counted, I don't know, but we have 40 to 50 people right here in this room. So triple that, you have the population of Nazareth. That's not a lot of people, is it? Probably everybody knows everybody and many of them are related to each other. You know how that kind of thing goes. But that explains a a town nobody's ever heard of just about. Didn't read about it in the Old Testament. Not a significant place by anybody's estimation. That's why Nathaniel said in John chapter one, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The answer is yes. But nobody expected that. Nobody saw that coming. It says here that his disciples followed him. 
Well, that's significant for a couple reasons. One is that having disciples follow him shows that he was a rabbi. He is a teacher. If you were a rabbi, you had your students, your followers, your disciples with you at all times. And this time he has how many? Twelve. By that point, he had called twelve specifically. We had their names earlier in the book of Mark. So they are with him, and that also tells us that this is not just a private family visit. He's not there on pleasure. For some reason, that question still gets asked if you're trying to reserve a hotel room. Is this business or, or pleasure? What, what is bringing you to the area? This was, in a sense, business. Yes, he saw his family. Yes, he saw lots of people he knew. But he was there for ministry purpose. And in a sense, he was demonstrating to his disciples. Remember, the next section, he's going to send them out two by two. And some people are going to accept their message and some people are going to reject their message. So he's demonstrating for them, this is how it's done. I'm going to go, I'm going to preach the gospel of repentance and this is the way it could go. could be that everybody rejects you. That's also that little phrase that his disciples followed him is a reason that I believe this is a separate occasion. There are some people, critics of the Bible, will look at this passage and the one we read in Luke earlier in our scripture reading and say, see, there are all sorts of mistakes. There are all sorts of oversights and errors in the Bible. Well, not if it's two different occasions. There, there are scholars who've gone through and tried to coordinate and sort of put together a timeline in the Bible. And, and those that I looked at, that first visit to Nazareth happened maybe about a year into the ministry. We think the ministry of Christ was plus or minus three years. So about a year in was the first time in Luke when they wanted to throw him off the cliff. And this is about two years in. We are within a year or so of the cross. And he comes back a second time, this time with his disciples. What's the first main point? That familiarity with Jesus is different from faith in Jesus. Let's look at verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, that's Saturday, that's when they would gather in the synagogue for worship, he began to teach in the synagogue. Nothing new or especially um, unusual about this so far. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? As you read this the first time, it may sound like a good thing. He's teaching, and they're astonished. They're blown away. And you, you may think, good. They're thinking, this is wonderful. As you continue reading, you start to realize this isn't a good question. Some of you may be like me. I am very analytical. And I have lots of questions about things. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's not good. Sometimes it gets me into trouble. Um, I can remember one of the pastors from previous ministries said, you have a lot of questions, don't you? I've gotten that as well. When I worked at the bank, both of my managers said, you have more questions than anybody I've ever had as an employee. They had questions. And questions can be for clarity I want to get clarification on this. That's good. I'm looking at some of the young people who are in, in class. If you don't understand a concept, it's good. Put up your hand and say, I don't understand. Can you say that again? I didn't get that. That's good. But sometimes questions reveal doubts. They reveal disbelief or unbelief. And that's what we see here. 
these townspeople knew Jesus. They knew his family. They knew his trade. The problem is that they would not believe that this person, I've known him all my life, the I changed his diapers kind of mentality, that this could be the Messiah. Just no way. That he could have this kind of teaching. No. So when it says, many hearing him were astonished, the word could also be translated amazed, astounded, overwhelmed. This is the same word we read back in chapter 1, and it was a positive connotation. It meant that they were overwhelmed. This is good teaching. This is authoritative teaching. Remember that? He didn't teach like the scribes. This was new. This was fresh. This was authoritative. No, here this is criticism. So they say, where did this man get these things? What do they mean? His teaching. Where is he getting this teaching from? What wisdom is this which is given to him? Such mighty works are performed by his hands. So the two things that are stressing them out, the two things that are confusing them, causing them to doubt, question, be concerned, are his works and his wisdom. Now, I read the entire six verses for you earlier. Did he do a lot of mighty works here in Nazareth? No, and at this point, I don't think he had done any, none that we know about. So how did they know about it? Well, we saw in the parallel passage, the, the earlier version in Luke, I should say, over in Luke, that first time he came, they had already heard and said, hey, do the things for us that you did in Capernaum. So his works, casting out demons, healing the lame, healing the woman with the issue of blood, he, raising the little girl to life, all the things that we've studied so far in Mark, those reports were coming back. Healing the leper, cleansing him. So they know his reputation. This is not just a really good teacher, though he was that. This is somebody whose works are proving the authority by which he's teaching. So they're asking, where did he get this stuff? His mighty works and his wonderful wisdom. Verse 3 continues their questions. Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are his, not his sisters with us? And then we have the summary statement, so they were offended at him. Is this not the carpenter? This is one of the passages. There's also one in Matthew 13 that tells us that Jesus was trained, as everyone would have been back then, usually in the trade of his father. Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus would have been trained in his father's trade. And this meant he was a craftsman. And yes, he worked in wood, but he also would have been able to work in other materials like stone and brick. What's the point of the question? Is this not the carpenter? To them, he's just a commoner. He's a blue-collar worker. The Greek term is tekton. So a paraphrase, a modern translation would be more like a handyman or a construction worker. So to them, that wasn't impressive. Well, he's just like us. He may be the carpenter, because there's a definite article there. He's the carpenter who was here in town, and now he went and did other things and, and taught. But he's just like one of us. How could this be the Messiah? How could he be anything special? Certainly not a rabbi. We know he didn't go to the normal rabbinical school. He hasn't been to seminary, to make it modern. Where is he getting this stuff? What gives him the right to come tell us what's right and what's wrong? We know where he grew up. 
This next question, is this not the son of Mary, reminds me of a song that we typically sing at Christmas time. What child is this? And the chorus ends, the babe, the son of Mary. And Christmas songs can give us warm fuzzies. We, we like these. We sing them every year for, for a lifetime, some of us. That wasn't a compliment here. It is an insult because tradition at that time, whether your father was dead, which Joseph may have been by this point, or whether he was alive, you would refer to a man as the son of his father. So what they're doing here is raising a question. The only time you'd call him the son of his mother is if it's uncertain who his father was. And to them, they're uncertain who his father was. There would have been rumors back at the time. This may be alluding back to that. They are insulting him. They are saying that he is illegitimate. We don't know who your father was. (laughs) In fact, when we read the first time he visited He's referred to as the son of Joseph. So they knew who his father was. Joseph was his adopted father. Joseph was not. What does this play into? And a very important doctrine to us, the virgin birth. His father is God. He is the son of God. And he could not have had an earthly father and mother and been our savior. He was fully God, fully man. We've talked about that several times already. We even saw it last week. So there's no question about his humanity, but he had, there had to be a special circumstance. And it was predicted all the way back in Genesis, the seed of the woman. He had to be God come in human flesh so that he could live a perfect life, because none of us has. There's some of you I just met this morning, but I don't think anybody in the room has lived a perfect life. I have not. So we could not live the perfect life and die for other people. Only he could do that. And he could do that, if you'll allow me to say it this way, only because he was God. And he could not die if he were only God. He had to become a man. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with our grief. He was afflicted. He took the punishment of our sin upon him. He was virgin born. You say, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. But the God who created the universe and set the biological rules into place can alter them in this one instance, and he did. So he was born of the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary. And she was pregnant even though she was a virgin. What are they doing here? They're questioning who this person is or who he claims to be. They go on to say, not just he's the son of Mary, but we know who his brothers are. You see that there? Is this not the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Those are four half-brothers. They were other children born later to Joseph and Mary, which, yes, Mary was a virgin. She was not perpetually a virgin. This tells us that Jesus grew up in a house with siblings, at least four brothers, at least two sisters. So there are at least seven kids. Big household, I think. 
Maybe if you came from 12, that's not big. But to me, it's a big household. Who are these guys? Well, two of them we don't know. Two of them we do know. James, the half-brother of Jesus, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he authored the book called James, the general epistle in the New Testament. And the same thing with Jude. He wrote the book of, guess which one? Jude, okay, general epistle. So two of them we know believed. We know, particularly from 1 Corinthians 15, didn't believe till Jesus, the half-brother, appeared to them after his resurrection, but they did eventually believe. Then we have reference to these sisters. Are not his sisters here with us? Matthew even adds the word all, so there may have been three or more, but there were at least two. You can't have plural sisters without at least two. So there are sisters. We don't know their names. They're not mentioned anywhere except here in Matthew, I believe, in the New Testament. And we don't know anything about them. We don't know if they became believers after his resurrection or not. But we know that they did not believe in him at this point. We know that they, particularly the brothers and Mary, have already come to take him away because he's out of his mind. We're a little embarrassed by this person who's going around preaching and healing people. They didn't understand. Those of you who have siblings, you grew up, you fought, you bickered, you argued, you hurt each other's feelings. Imagine growing up with Jesus. Don't you think there would be some big differences in that household? And yet those who were closest to him, who knew where he was ticklish, who knew what made him laugh, who knew his favorite joke, who knew his favorite color, those who knew him best on earth didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And collectively, not just his family, but the whole town, it says they were offended at him. Because they couldn't explain him they wanted to dismiss him. And the word there that we have translated offended here in the New King James, the Greek word is scandalizomai. Does that sound like any of our words? They were scandalized. Scandalized, stumbled, repelled is another synonym I found. They took offense. Something, and we don't, can't claim to know what it is, something was holding them back from believing in him. They didn't get it, they didn't believe, they didn't want to believe. Somebody paraphrased it this way. It's as if they are saying, this is the Christ? The one we've known all our lives is the Son of God? Are you kidding? We may not be able to explain his miracles, but we know who he is. He is a nothing and a nobody, and of that we are certain. They refused to see the truth that was smacked out in front of them. Danny Aiken said, it is critically important that we see Jesus as he truly is, as he is revealed in the scriptures, not as we might hope, wish, or want him to be. We can't make Jesus whoever we want him to be. He is the Son of God. He is the sinless Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And we can't try to fit him into our box, our mold. Why does this matter? We need to be on guard so that the familiarity we have with who Jesus is and what he's done doesn't just get old. That Yeah, okay, here we go. Another sermon about the gospel. Another sermon about the resurrection. Another sermon about sin. <sighs> Do we 
have to do this again? Yeah, we really do need to do this again. I need this. You need this. A danger, at least one danger, in growing up in a home with believing parents and believing siblings or growing up going to church is that some of us can get the impression, well, I've always believed that. We've always believed that. I'm a Christian. I'm good. Well, you may be a Christian, but it's not because you grew up in a home where your parents were believers, and it's not because you grew up coming to church all the time. It's because you came to the point that you realized, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I need Jesus to rescue me because He lived the perfect life I couldn't live, and He died the death that I deserved, and He defeated death by rising again the third day, something I could never do. He did what I couldn't do in order to rescue me from sin and its eternal penalty. Belief in Jesus as Savior is not a birthright. It's not something I inherit from my parents. And it's not something that I'm going to get by church attendance, even perfect church attendance, or osmosis, that I'm just, I'm just going to get it because I keep hearing it. There comes a point at which we believe and I guess I should stop and say, yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Yes, I believe that the scriptures teach election and predestination. But I also believe there is an element of human responsibility that as God gives me the grace to believe, I've got to put my faith in him. I need to acknowledge that last week we read the verse about belief and confession. That saying it a, a specific way or walking an aisle or praying a, a prayer just the right words, that doesn't save me. But when I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will proclaim it with my mouth. I will tell people. I've, over the last few months, at least once a month, had a conversation with one of the parents in our church. We have, we're blessed to have young people in our church, children. And it's hard to know, okay, does my child understand the gospel or not? Because that's something that's heavy on our hearts as parents, right? That we desire for our children to understand and believe the gospel themselves. And one of the ways we knew when our children sincerely believed the gospel is that they wanted to tell others. One of our kids, we weren't really sure if he understood it yet, and he went to Sunday school the next Sunday with his three- and four-year-old class, or four- and five, whatever it was, the Sunday school class, and he started telling them, you need to trust Jesus. You need to get saved. So he was being a little missionary. Well, that's fruit. Did doing that save him? Absolutely not. But he led us to believe that he was genuinely saved, even as a young child. And when that understanding comes, the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, the quickening, because Ephesians is clear, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were far off from God. But there comes a point at which the lights come on. Maybe I've heard this for years. Maybe I've heard it, people tried to witness to me for years, but all of a sudden, it's real, and the Word of God makes sense and the holy spirit works in my heart and i i believe i believe the gospel i believe that jesus is the savior that is when i am saved that is when you or your children are saved let us not be caught up in oh this is old hat this is familiar yes i know this yes i've got the gospel what else can we talk about in church this is what we're going to talk about in church guys Yes, we are in the Gospel of Mark, so it's coming up perhaps more often. But this is the point. This is why we're gathered. 
the unity that we have in Christ, the unity that we have that we're just the same as other people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's different? That many, most of the people in this room have acknowledged that I'm a sinner in need of rescue and I'm calling out to the Savior. I'm believing on Him. I'm accepting the free gift of salvation He's offering. So number one, familiarity with Jesus is different from faith in Jesus. Number two, being in a family with other believers does not make you a believer. Verse four, but Jesus said to them, the townspeople, not just his family, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and is in his own house. So we have these concentric circles. In his own country, a prophet's rejected. Among his relatives and closest friends, he's rejected. Among his own family, his own household, he's rejected. And he quoted that, I think, I saw this week, five times in the Gospels at least. Jesus said, a prophet will be misunderstood and rejected among his own people. I'm not going to do it this morning for sake of time, but you could easily go through and look at Isaiah and Jeremiah. You could look at Elijah and Elisha. You could look at many prophets of the Old Testament who came to God's people and announced God's message and were rejected. A few of them killed. Certainly some of them persecuted. Next time we're going to see John the Baptist who was beheaded for the cause of Christ. Even these who were about to be sent out as his apostles. Most of them died a martyr's death. It is common that those who, and, and don't get hung up on the word prophet, a prophet is one who speaks for God. In the Old Testament in particular, some spoke to tell the future, to foretell. But even in the New Testament, you read, I've been reading in Corinthians the last couple of weeks, and those references to prophecy can mean simply to foretell. To tell, this is the word of the Lord. It's both. So these prophets are rejected. He says, a prophet is not without honor. That's a double negative. So we could say, a prophet receives no honor in his own country. He receives honor everywhere else, maybe, but not in his own house, not with his own family. I hope that as I get to know your kids, as, as they grow up here in church, I wouldn't ever want anyone to think, okay, I'm good because of the decision that my parents made. I'm good because I became a member of the church. Because obviously we ask questions. Saved, baptized, tell me the gospel. But even in baptizing children, it can be difficult. And I, I talk with you, I talk with the parents, talk with the children to determine as best I can that you're saved. But whether I think you're saved or not doesn't determine whether you're going to heaven. And so we each need to come to the point that I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus is the Savior. And so often, Jesus was rejected. And so often, those he sent out, including us, are rejected. Familiarity with Jesus is different from faith in Jesus. Being in a family with other believers does not make you a believer. Third point, Jesus is hindered by unbelief. 
any of you who take notes, if you have a notebook there, if you look back at the first point from last week, you're going to see that same word hindered. I did it on purpose. Last week, my first main point was that Jesus is not hindered by sickness, uncleanness, or death. Because he's not. He's not hindered by those things. You can't stop Jesus. Oh, here's a dead little girl. I can't heal her because I can't touch what will defile me. No, that's, that doesn't stop him at all. The woman with the issue of blood. He wasn't made unclean by her. He healed her. Made her whole. So what do I mean when I say he is hindered by unbelief? Can you really stop the Son of God from doing what he wants to do? No. But he's going to choose where to heal and work his miracles. He's going to choose where to teach. And he's going to do it in the presence of belief. Let's look at it. Verse 5. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He could do no mighty work there. That, that wording, I, I guess, could mislead us a little bit. It's not that it stopped Jesus. John MacArthur put it this way. His power was not somehow diminished by their unbelief. He had power to do more miracles than he did there, but he did not have the will to do them because they rejected him. Miracles belonged among those who were ready to believe. So his purpose was to perform miracles where there was faith to believe. We don't always have that, but often there is faith. Last week, Jairus had faith. The woman had faith. Not perfect faith, maybe not even a lot of faith, but faith in the right object, which is Jesus. Someone else said Jesus will not force his miracles on a hostile, skeptical audience. He doesn't do that. He doesn't force himself on us. But he invites us to come to him, to find rest from the busyness of this world, from the religious activity of this world, to find permanent rest in him and peace. And what does it say about Jesus? He marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. He was completely astonished and amazed. They rejected him. They rejected his teaching. They rejected his miracles. Someone said he wasn't surprised at the fact of the people's unbelief, but that they could reject him while claiming to know him. I dare say that everybody in this room right now knows Jesus. You know about Jesus. I hope you know him as well. But there's a difference between knowing who the president of the United States is right now or the king or president or premier or prime minister of any given country. Have you met any of them? Do you personally know any of them? No, I don't. I don't think you all do. It's different knowing about somebody from knowing someone. And know is the idea of experiential. I have known God by what he's done through the Holy Spirit working in my life, in saving me, in making me more like Jesus, in changing me. Some of you have a testimony that he's made great changes in your life, amazing changes. And Jesus is marveling that these who should have seen it, should have exercised faith in him readily, the most easily perhaps, because they knew him. They saw this 
this kid who never got into trouble, this kid who never fought with his siblings, this kid who never lied or stole, always worked hard. They couldn't see it. Or they wouldn't see it. I don't know which. But they didn't see it. I don't want to make an argument from silence, but we don't know of any other time he went back to Nazareth after this. Two times. Once we read earlier in Luke, once here. But we do have another place in the scripture where he was amazed. There are only two times in all four Gospels. Read them all. You'll find only two times that Jesus was amazed. And if you want to look at this with me, I'm going to read some verses from Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. The centurion had faith that Jesus could heal his servant from a distance. Do you remember it? This is Matthew 8, verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So what we have here is a Gentile, a centurion, a Roman official, and Jesus says, I'm amazed. I haven't seen faith like this. And of course, you know the rest of the story. His servant was healed by Jesus from a distance. That wasn't a big deal to Jesus. But these folks, the folks of Nazareth, what is he amazed by? Their unbelief. Their lack of belief in him. I showed you this verse a few weeks ago in a little bit different context, but Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, what does it say? It is what? It is what? Impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, we focused on the second half last time, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But that's an important concept for us. Without faith, when we have unbelief in our hearts, we're not going to please God. Some of you sung the old song, Trust and Obey. They go together. We're not going to obey if we don't have the belief. If our belief is off, our obedience is going to be off. They go hand in hand. And then the first part of verse 6, this is where we're stopping for today. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. That should teach us something as well. He is rejected by those who knew him theoretically the best those who he'd known and loved all his life, and they reject him. No, they aren't throwing him off a cliff this time, but they very clearly reject him. We don't have anything to do with you. We are offended by you. And he just keeps on. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to preach the good news. I'm going to heal where people want me, where people have faith in who I am. Three simple ideas this morning. Familiarity with Jesus is different from faith in Jesus. Being in a family with other believers does not make you a believer. 
But let's remember, Jesus is hindered, or at least we could say, he chooses not to work usually in places where there's unbelief. So what do we do with that? If there's someone here this morning, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Your part is simply to repent. That means turn around, turn away from your sin. And as you turn away from sin, you're turning toward God. That's the faith part. Don't depend on anyone else or anything else. It's not my grandma was a good person. It's not I go to such and such a church, but you're going to depend on Jesus and him alone for your salvation. What does that look like? Well, normally we talk about praying to God. That just means talking to God. That you would tell him, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me, Lord. I can't do this. I don't want to die and face eternal separation from you. I want to give myself to you. I want you to rescue me and to save me. That's all it is. You say, I don't know what you just said. The words aren't important. The heart of faith is what's important, and it will express itself. You say, I've already done that. Praise the Lord. That's good. Is there any type of unbelief in your heart today? There may not be. But if there is, the Holy Spirit will show you what it is. Ask Him. Lord, is there unbelief inside me? Is there some way in which I'm doubting, I'm not believing that you will forgive me? Is there some way I'm not believing that you should or I should forgive somebody else? Am I doubting that the Lord's going to provide for me in what I need financially or materially? Am I struggling with belief that God's going to take care of me, whether it's my health or whether it's where I'm going to live or what I'm going to wear? Wherever your worry, wherever your doubt is creeping in, are you going to choose to trust Jesus this morning? He's the only one who can do anything about it anyway. And he will. If you ask him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Before I close this part of our service in prayer, I would like to ask, is there anyone here this morning who would say, Bob, I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I am burdened about it. And the, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. God's burdening my heart about it, and I'd like you to pray for me. If that describes you, would you simply look up at me, make eye contact with me? I'm not going to name your name or embarrass you. But if that describes you, let me know. Okay, yes? Yes, any others? Christians, is there anybody who would say, the Holy Spirit is pinpointing an area of unbelief in my life this morning and I'm confessing that and I'm forsaking that and I'd like you to pray for me. Same thing. Would you make eye contact with me and then look back down? Okay. Father, you know our hearts. I pray that we would respond to your voice. We've read your words from your word through, through Mark. And more importantly, I pray that we would listen right now to your Holy Spirit. I pray for those who do not know for sure that they are saved, that you would speak to them, that you would reassure them by your word that salvation is offered freely through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Give understanding by your Holy Spirit's guidance. 
for those who are dealing with some area of unbelief in their life. I pray that you would help them, give them grace as they repent of that, as they turn from it, as they confess the sin of unbelief. We pray that you would work through your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.